Well, let's stand and ask the Lord's blessing upon our study this evening. Gracious Father, we are privileged to be able to come before Thee to uh, hear Thou speak unto us uh, by Thy Word and Spirit. Lord, uh, what an honor to have the living God who has made us and who has redeemed us to draw us unto thyself and to give to us such a love letter that we find in thy word. We ask, Lord, that thou would uh, give to us hearts that are alive, that are warm, healthy, vibrant for thee that we would not be cold and indifferent. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins as we approach thee. Teach and instruct us, we pray, by thy spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to John 15, and verses 17 through 21 for this evening. John 15, 17 through 21. These things I command you, that ye love one another. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. From the last study, uh, we saw how the Lord Jesus uh, explained the kind of relationship uh, that we have with him. Uh, this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is a friendship. He calls us his friends, uh, not, not just uh, his Lord, our, uh, our Lord, uh, not uh, our, just our master, though that is true, but uh, he calls us his friends, and we call him our friend. That's the kind of relationship that the Lord Jesus speaks of that he has purchased for his people. The Lord says that uh, we are his friends and that we have this opportunity to hear his will. He doesn't uh, give his will to merely those who are servants, but he gives his will to those who are his friends. 
uh, that's one way that we know that we are his friends because he has given to us his word, which is his will. And we, in turn, express the fact that he is our friend by way of not only receiving his will as we read it, but also by way of our communication with him, our prayers, um, bearing our burdens unto the Lord. Uh, this is, again, what we do with friends, right? You unburden yourself. You, you talk to friends. You share things with your friend, and your friends share things with you. And uh, this is an exalted friendship. This is more precious than any friendship here upon the earth. And so this is, again, the, the type of relationship that the Lord Jesus speaks of. There's only one way in which we can really enjoy that friendship, and that is by way of our communion with him. And we've talked a lot about this, this idea of communion. Jesus has brought this up, abiding in him and him in us. And uh, so we, again, want to emphasize uh, this friendship will not be something near and close if we don't spend time with the Lord. Uh, it will be uh, like someone we barely know. And if that's the relationship that you have with the Lord, um, uh, I pray that you uh, consider very seriously uh, that the Lord wants a near and close relationship with you. And if you don't have that type of relationship, you should be asking yourself, why not? What's wrong? Because the Lord has told us those who are united to him, he will be our friend. And so if we are not walking in communion with the Lord, again, as I said, he's going to feel like a distant relative, one that we talk to, you know, uh, once every year or once every two or three years or something, a, a, a very distant relative rather than a close friend. Jesus reveals as well uh, in the section that we looked at last week uh, that the greatest love demonstrated is when a friend lays down his life for his friends. That, uh, again, is a indication of the nearness and the closeness of that relationship that he has laid down his life for his friends in verses 13 through 14. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Notice Jesus laid down his life for his friends. It doesn't say that he laid down his life for those who ever remain his enemies. <coughs> We were all his enemies at one time, but he made us his friends through his death and through his resurrection and through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He made us our, uh, his friends. And so, again, those who ever remain enemies of the Lord Jesus, we must, I think, take from what he says here, 
that he did not lay down his life for those who ever remain his enemies, but only those whom he chose to be his friends. In verse 16, he says, Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you that ye should go forth uh, and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. That whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. So the priority in this matter of who chose who, Jesus makes very clear that we did not choose him, he chose us. Uh, he's not speaking to uh, his disciples and saying to them, that I chose you to be my apostles, though that is true, uh, because as we'll see in the verse that we will look at this evening, in verse 19, he says that he chose his, uh, his disciples out of the world. And so he chose those to be his friends from out of the world, out of the world that hated him, despised him, that were guilty, that were condemned. He chose uh, his disciples out of that group of people, which again, all of us who have become the friends of Christ have been chosen out of the world. That's where we lived. That's where we wanted to be at one time in our lives, a part of the world. Until, until, again, the Lord came to us and, and changed our heart. But that choice, that decision, that election was made from all eternity. He chose us as he looked down. He didn't see us as friends and therefore ratify our choice of him by choosing us. No, he chose us and as he saw us a part of the world, the condemned world, the guilty world. That's how he chose us. And so uh, the world that he passes over uh, deserve his condemnation uh, uh, just as we all deserved it. And so the, the fact that he shows us mercy doesn't mean, mean he's showing, being unfair to those that he passed over. He's giving them exactly what we all deserved. But he shows us mercy and he shows us grace in that he did choose us out of the world. And he did so, uh, just again, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, or in 1 Corinthians 31, that no one would be able to boast uh, before him, that no flesh would be able to boast. You see, if the Lord chose us because we first chose him, uh, we've got all kinds of room to boast about that. But if he chose us when we would never have chosen him, we have nothing to boast about. And that's what Paul says. That no man, no flesh, might boast glory in his presence. So let's look at verse 17 this evening. These things I command you, that ye love one another. Now the Lord Jesus uh, has already pressed this particular truth, this command upon his disciples, 
in John 13:34 earlier when he says, "A new commandment I give unto you that ye love one another as I have loved you that ye also love one another." Likewise in John 15:12, "This is my commandment," Jesus says, "that ye love one another as I have loved you." So this is again repetition. The Lord continues to repeat for our benefit, for our welfare, because we are hard of hearing, because we are dull um, in receiving uh, the truth, because we are um, forgetful, because we choose to walk our own way rather than His, to not show that love that we ought to for one another, uh, to fall short of that in many ways and the way we treat, uh, starting with the closest relationships in our family, how we treat one another there. We fail, but we need to be reminded, Jesus says that we are to love one another as he loved us. We weren't worthy to be loved, uh, and yet he loved us. He set his love upon us. Um, and we may say, well, that person in my family, or, you know, uh, or my friends or whatever, uh, they're not worthy. They don't deserve my love. Uh, but that's not the issue. The issue uh, is none of us deserve to be loved uh, because we've all fallen short. We all deserve condemnation. Um, and we've not, we've not been, uh, uh, when we consider uh, the kind of friend or family member that each of us has been, if we are real honest, we can poke holes in all the ways that we failed. And so we could uh, certainly say, I've not shown myself to be the kind of family member. I've not shown myself to be the kind of friend uh, that uh, warrants or uh, that uh, deserves to uh, be loved. I failed. And if, you, if we do not see how we have failed to love one another, then we need to ask the Lord because uh, we fail all the time to love as Jesus loved. And so the emphasis in repetition here, repeating it over and over and over again, the emphasis is all the more needed uh, here to love one another because <clears throat> of how we're going to be treated, and that's what he's going to get into next, how we're going to be treated by the world. When we understand how the world is going to treat us, we don't need to be more distant from one another. We need to be closer to one another. We need to be able to draw from one another love that we're not going to get from the world uh, if we are standing for Christ and his truth, as we'll see. There are consequences. The hatred of the world uh, should not drive us farther and farther apart from one another, but the hatred of the world should actually draw us closer and closer to one another. Where do we go uh, when we get all beat up, as it were, uh, by the world? We come to our brethren. We come to our our family, our church family, the family of God, uh, to 
bind up the wounds, to encourage, uh, to uh, give to us that help and strength to persevere and to continue on so that we do not fall under the, the hatred, the assaults that the world brings against us. Uh, because it's very easy when we see how the world is lined up against us and we are few and they are many. It's very easy. Uh, the more that we see the world seeking to censor speech of Christians, to cancel uh, and to wipe out uh, the voice of Christians and ministers who stand for the truth, to imprison, to arrest them uh, for standing for the truth. We all the more need one another. Verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. At the time that Jesus was speaking here, it was the Jews and the Romans that hated Jesus as Savior and as King, and they hated his gospel. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 through 24, we see that the Apostle Paul speaks of the offense of the gospel, how Jews and Gentiles alike uh, were offended by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 through 24, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so again, the world hates us. Uh, even at the time of Christ, they hated Christ. They hated the apostles. They despised the gospel that was preached. It was, again, a stumbling block because Jesus was crucified upon a cross. And uh, they said uh, he couldn't be the Messiah. Uh, because those who die upon a cross are cursed. Cursed is everyone that hangeth upon a tree, uh, the Old Testament teaches. And so um, they, they turned their backs. They said, that's a stumbling block. We can't turn to Christ. He was cursed by God. He wasn't blessed by God, but that was the very point. Yes, he was cursed by God because he was bearing our curse. He was bearing our sin. That's why the Father judged him. That's why he was cursed. And for the Greeks, for the Gentiles, for the Romans, uh, they turn away from the gospel because it's, it's foolishness uh, to them. Uh, a sin, uh, a substitutionary death, uh, Jesus Christ being the Son of God, fully God and fully man, and dying in the place of guilty sinners was foolishness uh, to, uh, to the world, uh, to the Gentiles, to the Greeks and Romans at that time. So again, the world at that time opposed Jesus. They hated it. 
they hated his apostles and what they taught. And so we living today must not think it strange that we who follow the Lord Jesus are hated. Not because we are personally offensive, or at least we shouldn't be personally offensive to non-Christians. That's not our goal is to offend them. Uh, our goal uh, is not to, uh, to go forth and, and uh, by way of our words and our actions and our behavior toward them to, um, uh, to say, you know, uh, you know, we despise them, uh, they're our enemies. Uh, uh, rather, uh, they make us to be their enemies by way of their hatred for the gospel, their hatred uh, of the Lord Jesus and those who follow him. Now, they may not express it that way. Many non-Christians aren't going to say, well, you know, um, that they have hatred. But Jesus said, you know, there are really only two positions with regard to him that anyone can take. Either we love Christ or we hate Christ. There's not any in-between position. And again, um, we uh, recognize that that was the way it was when Christ was upon the earth. That's the way it is now. It's the way it's been throughout history. We live in a very relativistic um, age uh, in which people do not want an absolute authority. They don't want uh, absolute truth. They, they want to be able to define truth as, they, that it, as it appears to them. And uh, they prefer a broad path, therefore. You know, what's good for you is not necessarily good for me. If it works for you, that's fine. It doesn't work for me. That kind of an attitude. Um, and they're fine, uh, generally speaking, at least that has been the case. Perhaps it, it, it's not looking like that's the case any longer, where there is that kind of tolerance. You know, as long as you don't uh, say uh, to the non-Christian that what you're doing is sinful and wrong, the non-Christian very often doesn't care what you believe. You know, if you want to believe it, that's fine. Just don't, you know, tell me that what I'm doing is wrong. Uh, that's where, you know, the sparks begin to fly. Um, but increasingly, I think we're moving out of that kind of a relativism, out of a kind of toleration uh, to uh, a position where even holding to the views that we do as Christians are offensive enough that we have to be silenced as Christians, that we can't even hold the views uh, that we believe the scripture teaches. That's more, it seems like, the, the direction that we're heading as a society. Not a, not a kind of uh, toleration-oriented society, pluralism, but to moving to a more authoritarian uh, type of a society where the society says uh, 
that basically if you do not agree with our position, we're going to rub you out. We're going to, we're going to silence you. Uh, we're not going to allow you to share and to speak what is right and what is true. And as I said, um, that is already uh, being seen in various Western nations where ministers uh, are being arrested uh, for their refusal to comply with tyranny uh, that's being brought against them uh, by the government. And that I think, uh, unless God intervenes, that's probably the direction that we're, we're headed. And we need to, again, heed the words of the Lord Jesus so we're not caught by surprise. <clears throat> That's why, again, we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, a similar kind of a, a warning. Peter says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. In other words, again, when we suffer for what is right, for standing for Christ, uh, we're not to uh, be discouraged by that, Paul, or Peter says, but we're to rejoice. Why? Because it shows that we are in union with Christ. It shows that we are his disciples. It reveals that we are in communion with him. What, how he suffered, we are likewise walking in his footsteps. footsteps. Not, that we, not that we ought to run to persecution. Not that we ought to uh, become, in that sense, uh, sadistic, that, that we simply rejoice in, in suffering for suffering's sake. Uh, but when the master walks a particular way and was persecuted, and his servants are walking in his footsteps and are persecuted, for that reason it bring, ought to bring us joy that we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus, and we're receiving uh, that persecution, the backlash uh, that he received. People were not happy. When he, they were happy with the miracles. Uh, they were happy um, when he multiplied the bread and the fishes. They were happy uh, in the healings in the raising of the dead, they were happy in all of those things. Many of them were, but many were not as well. Again, they took offense at that as well. But when he began to speak the truth and to say, you hypocrites, the way that which you are living is hypocrisy. You say one thing, you practice another. It's lying. It's deception. You are deceiving yourself. 
then people got upset. People got angry with the Lord Jesus. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples that the world is going to hate them and will hate them in order to fill them with fear. Uh, that's not the motivation. That's not the reason he shares these things with his disciples and with us. But rather that we might be prepared. You know, when uh, things that are hard for us to bear under, I would rather have a little forewarning as to what is coming. When Joseph received the dream, or Pharaoh received the dream, and Joseph interpreted the dream of the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine and dearth, it was good that they knew that there, were go there was going to be seven years that were going to be very, very hard. There was going to be starvation. There was going to be uh, people who suffer greatly. It was good that they might prepare. And so likewise, Jesus is preparing us. This may not be a physical famine, but rather a spiritual famine. And what do we need to do in preparation for a spiritual famine? We need to eat. We need to feast upon God's word now. We need to understand it. We need to memorize it. We need for it to be a part of our life daily. Learning it, applying it in our lives, loving and enjoying that communion with Christ. That's how we prepare. people are offended by us, let's seek at all times that they not be offended because of our sin, because we have spoken in such a way or acted in a way that's contrary to Christ, contrary to his will. If they're going to be offended, let them be offended at the truth not by way of our sinful behavior, words. Let them be offended at the truth that they see in us. And they will be offended even at, not merely our words, when we are letting our light shine and we're not willing to compromise in our words, the way we speak, in our behavior, when we are seeking to represent the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of who we're around, uh, we should never uh, have a testimony that we act one way when we are around brothers and sisters in Christ, but we act like the world and we speak like the world when we're around the world. The Lord Jesus, again, that, that's, that's a sin of hypocrisy. That's a, a sin of of unfaithfulness on our part, compromise on our part. And to the degree that we do so, we need to seek God's forgiveness and call upon the Lord to help us to be the same person around 
whomever it may be. Not to be two different people, three different people. Not to be schizophrenic spiritually. But rather to be one person, the same person. We all have hypocrisies in our life. Every one of us, none of us is perfectly consistent with what we profess and the way we act and the way we speak. None of us is perfect that way. But do we recognize it and do we want it to be different? Do we desire to put it away? You see, that's the difference between a hypocrite, a, hip, a true, one who is a hypocrite, not just one who has hypocrisies in their life. We all, as Christians, have that. But a hypocrite doesn't care. A hypocrite doesn't want to uh, go to the Lord and repent of sin. A hypocrite is content to continue being and living two different lives or three different lives, depending upon who they're around or if they are by themselves, what they watch, what they observe, what they feed themselves with by way of what they hear and see. A hypocrite doesn't care. But a Christian, a true Christian, cares about the hypocrisies and wants to repent, does repent, and does seek God's forgiveness and seek God's grace uh, that those hypocrisies uh, would be uh, not hold that kind of uh, strength and power in our life that we would forsake those hypocrisies and again the Lord gives us that strength God we, we find it nowhere else it's not just mere determination on our part it comes from calling upon the Lord communing with Christ as we've been talking about abiding in Christ and his word abiding in us and so in verse 18, the Lord tells us why we will be hated and persecuted. He says, uh, the reason why we will is because he was. He was hated and persecuted. And we, therefore, who are united to him by faith, we will likewise be hated and persecuted. Here's the standard that we might use and evaluating whether, again, the light within us uh, is shining or not. Is there anything about our life, again, not our sinful behavior, that should be offensive to Christian and non-Christian alike, but there, is there anything about our life that reveals Jesus Christ that others seem to take offense at, that non-Christians take offense at? That, that is, I think, a standard. If there's nothing in our life, the, what we say and what we, the way we live that challenges non-Christians that um, that offends them because they see the light within us and when light within us, Christ's light within us shines, it reveals the darkness that's in them and they don't like that. By nature, even as Christians, 
we become very defensive when somebody reveals to us our sin, right? And we have to learn as Christians, when someone reveals to us our sin, that we need to be uh, thankful for that coming to us from that person so that we can, again, grow in Christ. I would say even if it's not spoken, we should seek to speak to one another in love when we're, when we're confronting someone about sin in their life, our concern for them. We should all, always seek to preface it by our, our love for them. But I would say even if it doesn't come to us, in the most humble way, even if it's not in our judgment spoken in the most loving way, do we dismiss what is said and simply focus on the manner it came to us and the way it came to us, or are we willing to actually consider what was said, the content, or do we simply dismiss it because it didn't come to us in the right way? I think that that's the tendency for all of us. I didn't like the way he or she said that to me. I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to take that. Rather than saying, okay, was it good the way that that person spoke to me? But what did the person say? Was there any truth in what that person said? So if we're not in any way, our light is not in any way shining so bright as to offend non-Christians, perhaps again, there's something wrong with our light that we need to really seriously consider. Jesus and, and the apostles, their light was very offensive uh, to the Jews and to the Romans. Because they wouldn't compromise the truth. John 15, 19, Jesus continues, If ye were of the world, and here the world refers to, again, the world that is uh, under the guilt of sin, under the condemnation of sin. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. So Jesus is saying, the Lord will, or I'm sorry, the, the world, the world will love you and will befriend you if you simply talk like and act like the world. You wanna be friends with the world? No. Again, act like and talk like the world. James 4, 4, however, says very sobering words, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. We demonstrate who our friends are 
by who we spend the most time with. Where do we find our entertainment? Where do we find that which is pleasurable and pleasing to us? Uh, are we becoming like the world? Is the world becoming more and more friendly to us? And can we discern that that's happening because the things we watch don't offend us, even though they may take God's name in vain, or even though there may be uh, various sexual uh, types of parts of, of, of something uh, that, that is very revealing. Uh, even, uh, even the kind of, we would consider more casual intimacy, kissing on, on the screen. Um, again, that's not as, perhaps in our judgment, it's not as serious as, you know, the more intimate types of, of scenes on, on, in movies or something like that. But uh, nevertheless, um, kissing someone who's not your husband or your wife uh, is not something that I don't want my wife going and kissing other men and I know she doesn't want me doing that. Uh, so uh, I, I dare say uh, if we wouldn't want that person or those actors or actresses that are on the screen to be you know, our spouse or our daughter or our son that is doing that or is blaspheming God, uh, then we shouldn't be joining in with those who are, you know, according to, uh, you know, uh, their job, descri job description, they're, they're acting. Uh, again, we don't act out sins. We don't act out for the entertainment of others. Um, isn't, it, isn't it very telling, and this is not original, but from, um, from a film that I think is seeking to make these truths very clear, but isn't it very telling that, that uh, Many Christians on Saturday night can watch a movie uh, where, where there is, again, uh, uh, cursing, taking God's name in vain, uh, uh, intimate scenes, and, and then you know, a few hours later show up for worship on the Lord's Day. Uh, again, uh, is there not any sense that, that that doesn't seem appropriate or that doesn't seem right. What if we brought those same things that, you, that have been watched the night before, what if we brought them into the worship service and I stood before you and I took God's name in vain? Or we had uh, people come up who were not married kissing one another or they were disrobing uh, would we consider that to be a problem? Again, this is, this is the kind of 
um, hypocrisy that I believe we need to recognize. No wonder the world is not offended by us when we are acting more and more like the world rather than following Christ. Jesus says in verse 19 that, that he chose his disciples um, out of the world. And again, that's the point I was making earlier. He didn't choose, this is not referring to the fact that he chose them to be apostles from, uh, from out of uh, their being, their being uh, already considered friends, but he chose them to be friends from out of the world, out of an unbelieving world, out of a, a world that was under the guilt and condemnation of sin. He chose them to be his friends from out of that world. That's what Jesus is saying. And so the priority here is with Jesus and election, not with us. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Verse 20, John 15, 20. Jesus says, Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. Earlier in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, he sent his disciples out to preach you know, throughout Judah and Galilee. And he had told them what they were to expect, even at that time, when they did so. Not to expect a warm reception. Uh, not uh, to accept or expect uh, wide open arms welcoming them. But rather, he tells them they're to expect persecution as they were sent out by the Lord Jesus, even during the ministry of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, Verses 16 through 24, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another, for verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over 
the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. So as they treated the Lord, Jesus says they're going to treat the servant of the Lord as well. Uh, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.12, if you reign with me, if we reign with Christ, or I'm sorry, if we suffer with Christ, uh, then we will reign with Christ. But we have to be willing to suffer before we will reign with him. First the cross, this was the pattern of the Lord Jesus, first the cross, then the crown. The crown in which he was uh, set up at the right hand of God as king of kings and lord of lords. He first had to suffer. So likewise with us, it's first suffering, and then it is that we receive the crown of life. Many of our, I think, difficulties we face uh, in relationships are based upon certain wrong expectations that we have. And, you know, we need, again, for you who are not married, and for us who are married as well, but you need to understand that um, when you marry, you're not marrying a perfect or sinless person. Now you may say, well, I know that, you know, and you may know that in your mind, but you learn it uh, in a relationship, a close relationship, uh, that there are going to be all manner of offenses. The closer the relationship, the more likely that those offenses are going to, uh, to annoy you, to bother you. The more distant the relationship, probably you can say that would be less likely. Yeah, you don't tend to care as much when someone annoys you that you, you, you are not near to or close to, but it's those relationships that are close and near and I think that it's very important in a marriage that we have the right expectations, that again we are uh, going to, uh, we're going to offend one another. And so again, we have to be prepared. What do we do? Knowing that that's going to happen, preparing myself um, for that, I think you learn how to deal with marriage by your own family relationship that you're in now. Children and parents, siblings with one another. That's how you prepare yourself for that most intimate human relationship of marriage. If you do not learn how uh, to be able to work through difficulties now, uh, you're going to continue, you'll take those same difficulties with you into, into marriage. 
And you may say, but you know, the person I marry isn't going to have the same problems that I face in my family presently. Well, again, I, I would say maybe not exactly the same problems, but there are going to be problems. And, you, and you're only deceiving yourself if you think that that isn't going to be the case. And you're not preparing yourself. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He's preparing us and saying, don't have unrealistic expectations that living a Christian life is just going to be rosy and, and there are not going to be any problems and everything's going to go well with you. No, the world's going to hate you. Have realistic expectations in all of these relationships that you have. Learn. Don't think that, again, uh, God doesn't have you exactly where he wants you right now. He does. You're in the school of Christ right now to learn all the lessons that you need to learn by way of how to relate to people. Not to have unrealistic, sinful expectations that, that you know, uh, you, that the person that's in your family that you have difficulty with not to have you know, uh, an expectation that uh, that person needs to be um, uh, sinless or needs to uh, live to please you or me, um, uh, but rather uh, we need to work on um, how we are to respond because we're not responsible for how others respond. We're not responsible for the actions and the words of others but we are responsible for how we respond to them on our part. And so, Jesus, in verse 20, again, starts the sentence off with remember. Again, I'm just uh, emphasizing again. Uh, why does he say remember? Because he's repeating himself. Um, and this just reminds us, as Christians, um, we ought not to seek to be innovative, novel, uh, using worldly methods, whether me as a minister uh, or you as Christians come up with just some new, catchy way, uh, a gimmick, uh, to draw people to Christ. No, uh, the Lord Jesus didn't use gimmicks. The Lord Jesus spoke in the language of the people. He gave them the truth. We don't have to apologize for the truth. We need to speak the truth in love, but we don't have to and should never apologize for the truth. The world judges, for example, a church on the basis of the size of the congregation, whether it's successful or not. Judges on the basis of the number of programs, you know, for every age group uh, in, uh, in the church, uh, that there's a program for that age group. The world judges on, and when I say the world, uh, uh, sadly, uh, the church has embraced uh, 
the way the world thinks in, in all of these ways. But the world also judges it on the size of the offerings, whereas the Lord judges on the basis of faithfulness. Doesn't matter whether the results are many or few. That's, that's not up to us. It doesn't matter whether we're successful in the eyes of, of the majority of churches or people out there. It doesn't matter. Because God doesn't judge on the basis of how large the congregation is. Doesn't judge on the basis of how many building projects are going on and how much property they own or what their church building and how beautiful the architecture is. God doesn't judge on the basis of that. He judges on the basis of faithfulness. Have we been faithful in teaching his word, preaching his word, counseling with his word, have we as a church been faithful to receive it, to love it, to love one another as Christ has loved us? The Lord bases or judges on the basis of faithfulness. Revelation 2.10, the Lord Jesus says, speaking to one of the churches there, Church of Smyrna, fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. But notice, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Be thou faithful. And finally, verse 21, Jesus says, but all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. And I would ask you, as we draw to a close this evening, who are we more concerned to offend? Are we more concerned to offend family and friends? Or are we more concerned to offend the Lord Jesus? Paul says, again, that if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. 2 Timothy 2.12. He also says in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 33 through 35, he's, he speaks about those who were faithful, who exercised faith. And he, he goes through a, a litany of amazing, marvelous works that were performed by those who were faithful, how God used them, how he worked through them. He says, uh, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight, uh, armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. A lot of amazing things 
on the part of those who are faithful to the Lord. But then in the next few verses, we see that those who are faithful to the Lord saw great suffering. Not all saw who are faithful the same results. For example, it says, Hebrews 11, the next few verses, these were faithful. Verses 36 through 40. And others, I'm sorry, um, verse 35, starting at the end of verse 35, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds, that is chains, and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts, and in mountains, and in dens, and caves of the earth. Was the group that suffered less more faithful than the group that did not suffer as much? No. We don't judge whether one is faithful by the results. That's up to God. What we are called to do is to be faithful to him, first and foremost. God will determine and purpose for each one how best to glorify him. And so let us take the words of the Lord Jesus this evening and may we walk in faithfulness, faithfulness, not success, 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 but faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness. Please stand with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee and praise Thee for Thy Holy Word, and we see how far short we fall uh, in being faithful. But Lord, we will continue to grow in faithfulness if our lack of faithfulness does bother us, if we are convicted, and if we, Lord, uh, come to thee, repent, and seek thy help and strength and forgiveness, and call upon thy spirit to uh, give to us uh, the faithfulness that we desire. And if we commune with Jesus Christ throughout the day, throughout the night, Lord, we, we pray that thou would work in our lives and that we would as we have read what the Lord Jesus told the church of Smyrna, be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee the crown of life. May that ever be before us. In Jesus' name, amen.